Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Sunday afternoon West Coast Time Space Show program. I'm your host, David Livingston, and thank you very much for tuning in. We have a terrific program with one of our favorite topics and favorite guests. More about that in just a minute. Uh, for the toll-free number, uh, and I hope a lot of you use it rather than email, it is 866-687-7223. You can use email, drspace at thespaceshow.com. Uh, note that our format today is variable, so do pay attention to the time. If you want to call our guest, Stephanie Thomas, uh, do it while we still have time to talk to you. Don't wait until the 11th hour and we're about to log off and, and then you call with a six-part question. Uh, so don't do that. But um, we're on a variable time and we hope you call rather than use the telephone, excuse me, use email. So once again, I'll, I'll put that number out and we'll do so many times this afternoon, 866-687-7223. Coming up, um, Matt Billy uh, from Booz Allen, who has been a guest on the show multiple times with his co-author, Carrie Westberg, is doing a program with us uh, on Tuesday, and they have a concept called Guardian Scout, Military Space from the Pad Up, and it's a launch training and launch program that they are suggesting to the Space Force. So I'm trying to get permission to put their paper up on the Space Show blog for Tuesday, uh, but that's what that program will be about. I've read the paper, and uh, it's quite interesting. Hotel Mars is an unknown. Uh, a word about the Friday program. Uh, I believe the guest that is listed, Mr. Cuba, is questionable because he's not responding to my uh, emails. So this is another one where I put in there to check the upcoming show menu to verify who the guest will be on Friday because I can't go back and fix newsletters. So uh, do check it if you're interested or if you're just signing on to hear whoever's on. That's fine, too. But uh, we may end up changing the program if Mr. Cuban needs a different date. And then uh, next Sunday, a week from today, is a really interesting show that has a lot of attention for me. Dr. Arun Sharma, Ph.D. doctor, by the way, at Cedars-Sinai Medical and Research Center in L.A., is sending stem cells to space. He's a space nut and now a space scientist. Uh, And they're doing incredible medical research and things with stem cells that have been to space. And he's uh, the co-PI of the program where Cedars is a leading researcher in this field. And we're going to talk about stem cells to space. And hopefully you'll find it to be as interesting as I know it will be because I've been talking to Arun and changing emails with him. Uh, But today, Stephanie Thomas is back with us, and Stephanie uh, is the Vice President of Princeton Satellite Systems. She is our go-to genius guru, incredible teacher, professor, and person who I can't see her in person, but I'm sure she's smiling during the entire space show program. Stephanie Thomas, and there's a lot that's been happening with Fusion. We've even been told by our wonderful government that they have or are very near commercial Fusion. I I tried to do some math on that, and it didn't seem that we were very close to commercial break-even, but if you added up all the numbers. But we'll hear from the break. And in talking to Stephanie, I realized that the space show located right here in the hot, sunny 
desert of Las Vegas is a true fusion-powered space shuttle program. So that is going to be our new slogan, fusion-powered by the sun from the Las Vegas desert. How about that, listeners? Stephanie, welcome back to the space show. How are you today? Hi, David. I'm great. Um, It's been a toasty summer here in New Jersey, but... Well, it's toasty here, but no humidity. I guess that's a benefit of desert fusion power, right? (laughs) Yeah, it's like a swamp over here (laughs) in Jersey. Well, so I have a bias toward desert fusion power. Um, Lots has been happening since we had a chance to last talk to you. Uh, So how how about just a a good update on fusion? And did the government really create fusion and did they really break even i mean i i did read stories about that several months ago so they did create fusion and remember there's experiments all around the world creating fusion all the time um and they did have they did break even in terms of scientific gain but you are correct that they are nowhere close to uh net gain or engineering gain which is to say the lasers were only about 1% efficient or only about 1% of the laser power, you know, actually went into the plasma. So while plasma did generate a significant amount of energy, they're still 100 times, 300 times away from that being a power plant. But, you know, they weren't really trying to make a power plant with this particular experiment. Um, There are a lot of other companies that have other ideas for how to make the lasers more efficient that are still working on this type of fusion. So so it's real, but, but you're right. It was not net energy. It was not net electricity gain. <laughs> is, is it a path to net electricity gain where it could be used, or are we just talking about an academic path? Well, it all depends on the laser technology. And as I mentioned, I've, I was just looking recently. There are several companies that um, – won awards from our government. The the Department of Energy has a fusion milestone program for commercial fusion power that was announced in, oh, I think May. And several of those companies are laser fusion companies, and and they think they have, you know, some technology that's going to make the lasers more efficient, but they do have a long way to go. It's a pulse kind of power, um, which puts certain loads on your electronics and your materials, so um, the instantaneous loads are a lot higher when you're doing that kind of fusion. So I don't think it's purely academic, um, and so it is exciting, you know, that they did have this, this game, but there is also still a long way to go. So before we get into all the details, are we anywhere with any kind of fusion on a timeline where we would see commercial fusion in five to ten years? It is entirely possible, yes, Um, because now, I mean, the amount of money, now there's real money being spent on a variety of concepts, whereas previously, you know, the NIF that you were speaking about, you know, was working on lasers, and, you know, ITER um, being built in France is a tokamak, but now the commercial industry is really spending money on a variety of different concepts. And it is likely that at least one of them, you know, if we use the longer side of your horizon, 10 years, it does seem possible that at least one of them is going to have a pilot plant working. It could be us um, if you give it a 10-year time frame. And and some of the companies are claiming even a a shorter time frame. But as you said, it's a long way to go. It's a lot of materials issues. Even if you can make it happen, can you build a plant that can last for 10 years? And I think we're still a ways from that. What is Princeton working on? So 
we have the PFRC2 experiment, which we discussed, you know, two years ago now that we had that previous um, interview. So the experiment is still running. We've been at a new frequency since November, a lower frequency, which is hopefully going to be able to heat our fusion fuel or our ions directly, whereas previously we were heating electrons. Um, so we're operating at this frequency. We have plans to increase the magnetic field within the experiment and to um, actually attach a new diagnostic that RPE spent, I don't know, a million, million and a half on um, later this summer or in the early fall. So the experiment's running. We're getting a lot of interesting results. Um, we're also still you know, working to raise money to build the next experiment, the PFRC3, which would have superconducting magnets and 10 times stronger magnetic fields. So we're still working. Um, on yeah, moving our experiment forward. Is is any company, in your opinion, in the lead? Uh, is it is the progress measured by who's in first? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know the the concepts are so different at this point. You know, we all keep trying to make flowcharts to explain, you know, to the public or to to the venture capitalists, you know, where all these different concepts lie because general fusion is like pounding their system with pistons. People are zapping the pellets with lasers. Um, Tokamax and and us have like steady state magnetic fields. People are smashing FRC plasmoids together. Um, There's such a variety. Um, It's hard to pick a front runner. Certainly Commonwealth Fusion is the front runner in money, right? They've raised and TAE both, Trialpha Energy, they've each raised, you know, in the four of a billion dollars. Um, but they, they still have a few years to go before they'll have a, a plant they can turn on, a Commonwealth Fusion specifically, whereas Helion is saying they're going to produce net energy in a plant next year. Um, and they may well do that, but then the question is, can they still turn that into a commercially viable plant five years after that? You know, can they get the cost down enough um, that people are going to buy, buy these fusion plants and actually use them, you know, on the grid? I think that's the big question is can we bring the cost down. So I don't know that there's a single front runner. There's certainly really, I mean, you're talking about the top six. Or that's it, like the top six. Commonwealth is MIT, is that correct? It is a spin out of MIT, correct. They had um, Spark, which was a Pokemon. Your Your first listener question is Todd in San Diego with an email. And he said, with all the different variety of fusion efforts going on, uh, and I don't know very much about fusion, so um, I'm wondering if one kind of fusion process might be good for doing Project A, but maybe Project D fusion project process might be good for another uh, use for fusion energy, or is fusion air energy the same no matter how it's produced? not the same no matter how it's produced because the way that you convert it to electricity or to heat is very different depending on the concept. So one example is Rialto Fusion is a spin-off from Wisconsin and they're working on a high field axisymmetric mirror and they're working on process. So rather than having plants producing electricity, they want to look at industrial kinds of applications like you know, making chemicals where they need heat. So, you know, the way they get the energy out of their fusion reactor will be different. Um, And then, you know, Helion or Commonwealth, they're looking to make electricity. But then again, Helion's looking at direct conversion of electricity, which would be a different process than, say, a fusion plant that you might be able to plop in an old coal plant and take advantage of the steam process to make electricity. So 
there are definitely different ways to use diffusion energy depending on because you know your product your energy can come in neutrons which is heat your energy can come out in charged particles depending on which fusion fuel you use right there's not only one fusion fuel you can have deuterium with deuterium with some helium three you can have deuterium tritium I think we talked about this a little last time. And then sort of the holy grail of fusion fuels would be proton or hydrogen boron 11, which requires the highest temperature and is the hardest to make um, close the loop with all the losses from that high-energy plasma, but has no neutrons at all, the least amount of radiation. So there is really probably going to be a variety of systems. I also wanted to mention a, a company, Avalanche Energy, and they're trying to make a small, almost like a Mr. Fusion, if you think back to Back to the Future, like a 10-kilowatt fusion battery. So, you know, everything from what we're looking at, which is a portable fusion reactor, right, small enough to put on a rocket, um, small enough to put on a truck or, you know, on an aircraft carrier, to baseload electricity, to heat, process heat, um, to basically fusion batteries. So I, I think we're looking at an entire market of fusion-based products. Um, another um, email question, Linda's in Tucson, and she says, is one type of fusion energy preferable for working in space, or is space neutral for fusion? It's not neutral. In space, um, deuterium helium-3, if you go through the literature back even decades, has been sort of the favored fuel. And proton boron-11 would be in that category, but as I mentioned, it's harder. Um, deuterium helium-3, because it produces a lot less radiation, which means your components last longer and you don't need as much shielding if you have people or for your electronics, um, everything that's damaged by radiation. And because it also produces charged particles, like proton boron 11 does, you can potentially use it for thrust, which is what our system is you know, designed to do, to basically have a flow that you can either um, cool that flow, recycle it, and have a closed-loop power plant, or have an open end, and that flow becomes your thrust. So. There are advantages in space to using specific kinds of fuels, so you'll see um, more concepts in space leaning towards those fuels because deuterium tritium just produces all that energy in neutrons, which means you need a thick blanket to absorb the energy, and that just makes it heavy. So it's much harder to put it in space or use it in space in that case. What, in your opinion, opened the door to money and sort of turned a, sort of a, a sleepy... Uh, not so active industry into one that is is really lighting fire in many many different ways and getting all sorts of interest in it. What was there a turning point, a catalytic event, or what happened? Well, I think you could point at superconducting materials and the advent of the high temperature superconducting wires and then them being able to produce that in longer, longer lengths. So several of the concepts that I talked about are dependent on that specifically, Commonwealth Fusion among them. Um, Rialto also, I think that their, their high-field mirrors would also be dependent on high-temperature superconductors. So that particular material um, is game-changing for certain configurations that depend on magnets. Uh, ARPA-E funded several companies. The program was called Alpha. I'm trying to think if it's been as much as 10 years ago. Um, but both Helion benefited from that program, as did Zap Energy, um, who are based on a Z-Pinch. So, you know, they got government funding and they were able to, you know, really move their concepts along a bit. And power electronics 
also the car, the electronic vehicle market, which we're all familiar with. But electronic vehicles depend on all sorts of power electronics to, to control themselves, to charge their batteries, which are benefiting some of the fusion systems. So I'd say it's just really technology coming together. Now, the Eater Tokamak in France, it's taken like so many decades to design it. It's not even using these new superconductors, right? It's still using the older ones, which is why Commonwealth is sort of hoping with their commercial money to really even leapfrog that experiment. So it is, I guess, these breakthroughs in materials, both for power electronics, um, these solid-state semiconductors are contributing to that, like uh, silicon carbide and, and the superconducting materials themselves, which we would also take advantage of. We just need a much smaller quantity um, in our magnets because our whole system is so small. Is fusion a global effort now? Are companies all over the world working on it? And what about our adversaries in Russia and China? Are they working on it? To our knowledge, they are working on it, and yes, it has gotten quite global. Um, the Fusion Industry Association, of which we're a member, which is you know nominally a U.S. organization, is now establishing an office in England. Um, there are several large fusion companies, Tokamak Energy, among them in England. Um, one of the laser-based companies is in Germany and has received uh, a good chunk of research money from the German government. Uh, Korea has you know, long-standing experiments and working in fusion and some great companies that can um, contribute to building these subsystems for these complex machines. Um, so the K-Star is the name of their tokamak. So yep, to our knowledge, China is also investing in fusion. They don't, you know, publish necessarily as much papers or, you know, come to conferences and sort of tell us everything that they're doing, but we have every indication to think they're working on both tokamaks and some of these alternate confinement um, concepts also. I don't know as much about what might be happening in Russia um, in terms of fusion specifically, but definitely across Europe, there are a lot of companies now working on different concepts. Uh, you mentioned before the show that um, you uh, have a, a conference coming up, and so I'm wondering if um, if your fusion work and, and fusion energy is ITAR controlled. Um, are you? Restricted in, in what you can talk about, or all, or is all of it in the public domain now? Well, at the moment, you know, our we call it an experiment. Our our actual experiment is still very far from you know where an actual rocket would be, which is it's not actually producing fusion, therefore it can't produce thrust. You are correct in that once we have an actual fusion rocket, that product with the current way the regulations are written would be ITAR controlled. Um, because of the, the characteristics of the, the high specific impulse and the amount of thrust that it could produce. As it stands right now, the regulations, they don't really cover fusion. Like if you go through um, the, the, defense, um, the defense munitions list or the commerce control list, they're really based on fission technology. So at some point, you know, the bureaucrats are going to have to go through and really, you know, write more specific regulations now. Our system, there are much fewer proliferation concerns compared to fission systems, which they are fusion system, right? It's not radioactive, you know, before you've turned it on. It doesn't use radioactive fuel. You know, it's very safe. It can't blow up. Um, so a lot of the issues that um, make fission, you know, a nuclear system very highly controlled don't apply. 
And for instance, yeah, the NRC recently decided that fusion reactors would be regulated um, more like like an accelerator or an isotope generation system and not as a fission system. But in terms of a propulsion system, yeah, when once we're actually making fusion rockets, um, we would probably need, you know, an export license to say, you know, put one on, on a European spacecraft. Um, I did not, you know, we're not, we're not quite there yet. So certainly all our research is still basic research, um, you know, and, and modeling and all that work is, is in the public domain. Um, you have uh, another email. Uh, this is Chris in Atlanta. And uh, listeners, again, it, it's Sunday. I doubt any of you are at work. So how about using the phones, 866-667-7223. have a hard time getting people to, to use a telephone. Uh, Chris in Atlanta says the space show has a very strongly committed and supportive audience for space solar power. It comes up on a vast majority of shows. They have great guests on the subject, but the timeline is always out there. sort of reminds me of the fusion timeline. If the two timelines are somewhat comparable and fusion came to being in reality in a commercial sense, would it totally negate the reason to have space solar power? We're talking about um, collecting power in space and actually beaming it down to the Earth? Correct. Yeah. I mean, that's hard, right? That's a long distance. Everything's hard. So. Yeah, well... Um, so you still need to build large solar arrays, and then you have to beam it down, and there's the losses. But hmm, I don't know that you would negate it. I certainly, for you know, like space travel, you know, we're looking at fusion and sending fusion to places where you know there isn't enough solar power. And back here on Earth, there are certainly places I would think on the Earth and, and applications where it's not convenient to sit around and get your power, you know, beamed from the sky. Um, transportation among them. You know, you could power, you know, ships, um, shipping going across the ocean, you know, remote systems like all around the world. So depending on what orbit those, are they in geostationary orbit? No, it couldn't be a geostationary orbit. Um, but, you know, where they are, where their solar power stations are in orbit is going to depend on where they can send their power. So fusion will have the advantage of being, you know, you can put it anywhere. You're not going to depend on where you are relative to the solar power station. You're not going to need transmission lines. Like for our system with, like, the smaller reactors, the more portable reactors, it's really replacing, you know, diesel generators and batteries. So, you know, bringing your power with you. And there will always be applications where you need that. So I, I could see them, you know, both having their application in the future. Um. <laughs> That's a, a good diplomatic way of saying it. Um, do you think, well, it's hard to even estimate the cost for some of this that would be uh, 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 coming out in, in portable power. Um, is, is the government now fully on board with fusion? Uh, you, you don't have any real regulatory issues or holdbacks or... Like, space solar power still has holdbacks in the government that are not supportive of it, uh, although they seem to be getting more supportive. Uh, is, is the government and, and people in the government fully on board with developing fusion? I would say yes. You know, there's, um, there's a working group in the House, I believe, the Fusion Energy Caucus, and 
ARPA-E just had this big milestone commercial fusion pilot plant milestone program. Now, it's not building plants yet. It's the money that they've allocated to the eight companies that won are for a critical design, like designing the prototype plant, but they're looking at bringing plants online in the 2030s. Um, so, you know, they've selected these companies. You know, they've given them significant money, which the companies also have to put in some of their own money. It's a public-private partnership. Um, but they're supporting those companies with a goal of getting fusion power on the grid. So I would say, yeah, the government's on board. And the recent um, announcement from the NRC about the regulations, there had been this regulatory uncertainty about whether they would treat plants the way fission, or fission plants are. And they've definitely made the decision that, no, that they're not going to be um, require all the paperwork, you know, and regulatory scrutiny that fission plants do. They are going to be sort of one tier down, um, which will definitely reduce the costs and the worry about that, and that's going to apply to all fusion systems. And, and ours would be on the far, far low end of that in terms of the amount of um, stored, you know, radioactive materials on site, like tritium, um, and then the amount of waste you create, you know, down the road, you know, when your plant is 20 years old. Your first power plant is finally 20 years old in, like, you know, 2030 or 2040, but eventually you're going to have used components that are, are somewhat radioactive that have to go somewhere. Um, so I think the government really is, you know, they want the U.S. to be a leader. You know, there's so much um, impetus now to, to solve climate change. Right this summer, right, June, June was horrible worldwide. Um, there's definitely, like, that fire that we need to do something and we need to do something now, and the government really has a role in helping nurture these companies and get results faster. So what would Fusion have done for, for the fires and, and the climate? Well, you know, we just we have to get the amount of carbon we're putting in the atmosphere down um, as fast as possible. And fusion, some of the carbon sequestration technologies also require power, right? So how are you going to power these things that are sucking, you know, the carbon out of the air without creating yet more carbon, right, if they need power to do that? So fusion could be part of the solution, both to simply replace greenhouse gas producing, you know, transportation, electricity, all across the uses of energy, um, not just electricity, and even provide power for these technologies to actually get the carbon out of the atmosphere to try to, you know, eventually bring the temperature back down, right, which requires removing the carbon and the um, methane. So I think it has an important role. Living in a, in a drought area, I'm a big supporter of, of uh, water desalinization, but it's very energy intensive. It so is. can you see fusion powering desalinization plants in a much more efficient way than fossil fuels or even uh, nuclear fission? A hundred percent. That's one of the uh, one of the applications that I like to highlight is desalination plants because, as you said, they're energy intensive, and so it may not be, you know, maybe it's somewhere where you could have a solar power plant feeding that, but that's not true everywhere, and fusion has such a smaller form factor, and definitely that's one of the potential important applications, and there's so many places where fresh water is becoming more of an issue. A similar future, you know, idea for where fusion power would shine compared to other types of renewables or other types of energy is vertical farming. And I don't know if you're familiar, you know, so much with this, but the idea is it's a skyscraper farm, right? So, but that requires power. You have to provide light for the plants, and you have to pump the water for the plants. So, while maybe instead of having to farm an area the size of Kansas, if you were doing it with solar power, now you'd have to cover Kansas with solar panels. But if you had a fusion reactor, you can just put it in the basement of the building and create a vertical farm. So right, we have to feed people, and we have to do it in places where, especially with climate change, you know, where you were able to grow things 
is not necessarily going to stay the same. Um, we're going to need to grow food. And in order to grow food where the people are, vertical farming is potentially a solution. But, again, it's energy intensive. So how are we going to power it without making the climate problem worse? So I'm not familiar with vertical farming. So each floor has soil and crops on it. Is that the idea? Pretty hydroponic, so there's not necessarily a lot of soil, but the the trade-off is you're providing all the nutrients and water, which you need to pump, right? You need to be pumping the water along and refreshing what those roots are getting. And I saw a presentation, I guess a couple years ago, that at this point they think they could grow almost anything in a hydroponic-type environment, you know, things that grow on trees, (laughs) you know, berries, um, greens are what are the easiest. Like, I think even on the space station, you know, they can grow their own lettuce and greens at this point. They're pretty easy to grow hydroponically, but really growing all sorts of produce. Um, But it is is energy-intensive to do. So the trade-off is, you know, you're providing the nutrients, um, and you have to pump the water, and you have to give them light. (laughs) And you do it in a building. You have a caller patiently waiting. Uh, good afternoon, oh, caller. Welcome, welcome to the program. Who are you? Where are you, please? Uh, uh, this is John of Fort Worth. Yeah, um, I was thinking, you, you, you're, one of your big issues was the, uh, was a, if I remember from previous show, you were working on a, a space propulsion system using fusion, correct? You are correct. Yeah. And that was a, a helium, was a helium-3 deuterium-fueled uh, uh, system? You got it right. Yeah, because obviously they get everything out and charge particles that way, pretty pretty much. Uh, the question is, is where do we get enough helium three to make this practical? Uh, that's one of the that's a fairly rare um, uh, isotope. You are correct. So there's there's a lot of solutions actually to that question. So number one is because our reactor is so small, we only need a small amount. So in order to test our reactor, once we're at reactor scale, which we hope would be within 10 years, um, we'd be able to buy that amount of helium-3 off today's market. Right? It comes today, it, we can produce it from nuclear weapons, which we hope there will be less of in the future, but the nuclear weapons that are there now and being maintained actually produce tritium, which produces helium-3. Uh, can-do reactors produce helium-3. We have a lot of wells in the U.S. We're blessed with a lot of natural gas wells and helium wells um, in the middle of the country that have a high percentage of helium. Where there's helium, there's helium-3 isotopes. So we estimate you can produce probably up to about a gigawatt a year if you were able to capture the helium-3 from natural gas wells or helium wells. You can produce it by putting lithium rods in fission reactors. But let's talk about the space applications, which is fun which is mining it on the moon where it lands from the solar wind. And uh, I'm not going to remember the particular, the actual um, fraction in the regolith, but you can dig up the regolith and get the helium-3 out and shoot it back to Earth. And we just did a paper in January about the gas giant planets. So the gas giant planets have about 15% of their atmosphere is helium. So it's actually probably going to be easier to extract the helium-3 from their atmospheres than it even would be from the lunar regolith. So if our fusion rocket is successful and we could get to, say, Uranus in two years, it might actually be more cost-effective to, you know, <laughs> bring it back from the gas giants than some of these other things I'm describing. So, so there's a path for development and for producing it in larger quantities for sort of near-term use. And then if you know, we want to power the planet with helium-3, the extraterrestrial sources are one possibility. But there's actually another possibility which is DD fusion, or which is deuterium-deuterium fusion, produces helium-3. 
not very good for a power reactor because that the energy of the DD reaction is much less. So it's really hard to get a net gain reactor, but it could be a really great breeder reactor. So these reactors would be a little more radioactive. You know, their walls might not last as long. So they might not be great as a commercial power plant, but they could be a source of pretty cheap helium-3 in the future. So now we're using seawater, right? So the fuel to that plant is seawater. Helium-3 comes out. We can use that in our clean reactors, in our vertical farms, you know, in our desalination plants, like anywhere it needs to go. So um, there are actually quite a few possibilities for mining it or making it. Yeah. I hope that was a lengthy answer to your question, but it's something we've looked at a lot. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, because I've often thought as far as the uh, reactor with deuterium, just starting off with deuterium, deuterium, that you know, half of those reactions are going to produce helium-3 and the other half tritium, and at the densities and temperatures to, to do the first part, that the others should react fairly efficiently, shouldn't it, at that point? In other words, so you'd have the... In other words, the, 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 the DD part is, is not really producing that energy maybe any, any much, but the, the, what comes after it naturally would produce a lot more energy. If you consumed it right away, that's correct. So now right. Julian is another company um, working on FRC, field dose configuration type power reactors where they're going to be smashing them together, but they have a plan for basically a DD, we call it helium-3 catalyzed, where if you're mm -hmm. consuming that helium-3 produced. Now, it's produced at um, more than about one mega electron volt, so, you know, you have to probably extract it, cool it, and put it back in. It may not stick around, <laughs> and that depends on the configuration. So in our reactor, we actually have, um, we exhaust that fusion ash right away, and then, you know, we could cool it and re-inject it. Um, so it depends on everything, like how big the radius is of the fusion region as to whether that helium-3 or tritium are going are gonna to burn up, right, are going to fuse or come out and have to be re-injected. So, yeah, what you're talking about we call helium-3 catalyzed DD fusion. And that is, so there's kind of a whole range, right, between pure DD and pure D helium-3, and there's kind of different options in the middle where you might be producing net fuel or, you know, producing energy. But you are correct. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, it's a very interesting discussion there. Yeah, I, uh, and finally I'll close with this. Uh, if I remember correctly, your, 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 uh, your space concept would actually be using the, the uh, fusion reaction, but would actually be using ordinary hydrogen as a propellant on top of that to kind of get thrust. Is that right, or am I remembering that wrong? No, you remember it exactly correct, although it could be deuterium instead of, you know, hydrogen, depending on what we have on board. But, right, we have a cool plasma flow, in our case, that goes around the fusion region, uh, and then it, it, it's like in a heat exchanger going around it. So it gets all the energy from the fusion ash, and that's how it ends up in our propellant. Right, so that would be our fuel, in the, or our propellant in the context of being a rocket. Okay. Well, very good luck, luck on this research. It'll be interesting to see what you come up with. I'll uh, yes, get off now and let somebody else uh, call in. <laughs> John? Yes? you got to wait because I've got a question that you're going to love, so you, you, you might as well listen. You may want to say something to Stephanie. Uh, this is Paul in Davis, California, and he says, Stephanie, not sure if you follow all the UAP talk, the hearings and everything going on about unidentified stuff in the sky. If aliens mastered fusion, would that be sufficient power? 
to get them to travel all around the galaxy and to cross light years? Well, you know, fusion doesn't even really have enough energy. You really need antimatter. If they'd mastered antimatter, I would say yes. <laughs> um, we've looked at, like, our rocket and going to Alpha Centauri, and it's hard to get there in less than a couple hundred years, you know, even with, you know, using that helium-3. Now, if you can use the fusion products directly, um, your specific impulse is higher, but you just don't have much thrust, right? They're shooting out so fast. So it's challenging. Um, but, yeah, antimatter is probably going to win out if you're trying to go between stars faster. So, um, you know, they might have fusion providing power on board their ship, certainly. And um, the three-body problem is a, a trilogy from a Chinese science fiction author that's being made into a television series. And in that case, the aliens were using, theoretically, fusion propulsion, and it did take them some amount of time to get here. <laughs> so if, if you were looking at... A, a fraction of the speed of light, what could a really good fusion propulsion system produce in terms of uh, comparing it to antimatter? Oh, I don't know the ratios off the top of my head. Um, I feel like antimatter is a couple orders of magnitude better um, in terms of the amount of energy. So the problem with fusion is you got to bring your reactor with you, right? That's the uh -huh. thing is a lot of the fusion systems, like, they're just still too heavy. <laughs> One of our uh, students said at one time, he's like, well, if we could make the magnets out of diamond, you know, then it could really be light enough, um, you know, but you need the fusion system to be, you know, like 100 kilograms instead of 1,000 kilograms or 10 kilograms instead of 1,000 kilograms, producing the same thrust and specific impulse to really shorten your, your transit time to Alpha Centauri. So that's just the, the, the issue right now is we have no way of, of maybe making that energy without still having a quite substantial engine to do it. You got to bring it with you. Blow <laughs> you down. John, this is right up your field. Do you care to comment briefly? Well, I, I, I basically agree, at least on the fusion thing. In fact, I went through that type of thing on a show some time back. What I what my own calculations on that were. Uh, as far as uh, antimatter, I mean, obviously it produces a lot more energy, but there's a big problem of how you control that antimatter and, and and be able to react it and produce those quantities of it. So, but um, yeah, as to what the UAPs are using uh, for propulsion, uh, that is a big question mark. This is what the biggest problems, I think, with the scientific community, this stuff is almost incomprehensible that they're here, uh, obviously, and, and so and that's why I'm very interested to know what, what they may have gotten these crash retrievals, what have they found out, and can we even comprehend it? I think that's a big issue, And but, um, yeah, <laughs> but I'm, I'm looking forward to learning more, I guess, is the thing on that one. Uh, thanks, John, and, and Stephanie, thank you for digressing on that, but, which I guess was not much of a digress if you guys have actually looked at things like that uh, in your research. Um, I have another one for you. Beverly is in Seattle, and she says, bear with me, I am a newbie with fusion, and I am not a scientist or a physicist, but I constantly hear about the temperatures that the sun is operating at in the many, many millions of degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, and I, then I hear that the sun is a big fusion engine, and then I hear that all these companies are producing some level of fusion and working with it here on Earth. So how are they containing the millions and millions of degrees of high temperature 
that fusion results in from the sun, or have you found a way to do it at much cooler temperatures? I can't think of any material on Earth that could stand up to millions and millions of degrees before it would melt and disappear and destroy everything within whatever radius that high temperature could travel. So how is the temperature contained, or are we not talking about the same levels of temperature? Oh, no, we definitely need those temperatures. And the way we keep it off the materials is by using, you know, magnetic and electric fields generally to, you know, keep the plasma. And uh, in our machine, the plasma is actually not that dense um, because it's not the sun, but then there's an inertial confusion concept. So you are correct. We're talking about, you know, like 100 million degrees centigrade or even 1,000 million degrees centigrade. And it's magnetic fields, basically. So whether those magnetic fields are being created by the plasma after you've zapped it with lasers or being created by magnets, um, those are all the different ways, you know, that we're trying to confine the plasma. So they fall into buckets of inertial confinement, um, magnetic confinement, and then magneto-inertial confinement. But, yeah, we do have to trap it. We do have to keep it from, as you said, destroying the materials. And that is a big challenge. So tokamak is, you know, that donut-shaped fusion reactor right. that they've been working on a long time, which people may have heard that word before. But they suffer potentially from disruption, which is basically your plasma getting loose from your magnetic confinement and zapping a hole in the wall. And if it zaps a hole in your wall, you know, it's going to be offline for months while you fix it, if you can fix it at all. So they have to come up with all these creative ways to, you know, actively control the plasma and avoid this disruption. That's not a problem that we think our system will have, but really you know, we're using those magnetic fields to keep the plasma well off the wall. You know, you don't want it to touch the wall. Um, and, yeah, if you're degrading your walls, then you have a maintenance, you know, issue where every year maybe some of these systems you might actually be replacing components because they got eaten away by the plasma. So you're entirely correct. They are very energetic particles, but they're not, you don't have an entire machine full of plasma as dense as the sun. You know, in the case of inertial fusion, you start with a little pellet that's only the size of a BB, <laughs> and that's inside a big machine. So once it fuses, you know, there, there's space for, for that small amount of plasma to, to come out and lose its energy before it hits the wall. So it is something we have to manage. So it's not temperature like a fire that's too hot for you to go into the building or get close to. So you're, you're, so how do the magnet, how does the magnetic field control temperature? Because most people are thinking of high temperature, like a really hot fire or something like that. But that's not no, what you're talking about. will get about. really hot. That's a, <laughs> I mean, systems, that, surfaces that the plasma is hitting will, in fact, get very hot, whether that's what they call the diverter, which is where, you know, the plasma is coming out from the reactor. Um, it is an issue we've had on our own machine from, you know, making it hot. They've cracked the window at the end. You know, the window got really hot from the plasma hitting it and bouncing it off, and we're not even producing fusion yet. Um, so the way it works is once a particle, remember plasma, when we talk about plasma, that gas has a charge to it, right? So some of the electrons are ripped off, so it has a charge. And that means they follow the field line. They go a circle around the field line. So we use that to create our magnetic field so that the plasma is merely following along those field lines and not hitting the wall. So it's all about shaping, you know, that magnetic field and, you know, 
predicting, you know, how big those plasma orbits are going to be, you know, how many centimeters or meters, um, so that they don't hit the wall. And every configuration has sort of, you know, different ways of managing that, but it is all about keeping the plasma from actually destroying its, the system. So you have, like, a magnet through the middle, the way that donut does, the way you picture the donut. There's magnets around, you know, the donut, but there's a magnet through the middle, the central magnet. And that magnet has a lot of flux on it, heat flux coming. So there's radiation coming off the fusion plasma. There's, you know, somewhat cooler plasma on the edge, but it's still hot um, hitting that surface. And they have a real research program to figure out what materials to make that out of, how to cool it, and how to make sure that these disruptions don't happen where the plasma would escape and actually could burn a hole, could literally burn a hole on the wall. So it is some very hot stuff. Uh, interesting. Uh, listeners, we still have time. If you want to give us a call, 866-687-7223. And um, uh, email Dr. Space, D-R-S-P-A-C-E. Hold on. Uh, Stephanie? I'm here. I forgot to hang up on John. So uh, I, I guess uh, he hung up on himself. Thank you, John. I, I forgot all about that. Uh, I'm glad I did that. We have another caller. Uh, oh. Good afternoon, caller. Welcome to the program. Who are you? Where are you, please? Uh, this is Tim from Huntsville. Hi, Tim. Good to hear from you early in the show and not at the 11th hour. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Go for it with Stephanie. All right. Well, well, wondering was, first off, what's the, uh, what's the uh, specific impulse, uh, mass flow, and efficiency of your system? So, you know, it's still fairly theoretical, you know, predictions from, from where we are right now, but we're looking at a specific impulse of about 10,000 seconds, or our plasma is going about hopefully 100 kilometers per second out the back of the engine. Um, and the mass flow, so it's in a fraction of a gram per second. Um, it's a small mass flow, but we're looking at thrust between, well, I guess around five newtons per megawatt of fusion power. Okay, five newtons per megawatt, okay. Yeah, so we call right? it, a, for our specific system, like a moderate thrust. It's a direct fusion drive in the sense that the fusion energy is going directly into the propellant, so we're not making electricity and then driving uh, an electric propulsion system, it, it, it comes right out right out in the plume. Um, so that's about where we are. Can you push a throttle and, and add more, uh, more thrust? Does it work off of a throttle? Within a certain range, yes. So one of the papers that we wrote, I think it was all the way back in 2018, we did look at a range of mass flows. So we need a minimum amount of mass flow around the outside of the fusion region to extract the energy. Right, we have these fusion products. They're going to be going around. It's a certain radius, and we need to suck their energy out. So we have a minimum mass flow beyond which the, all the energy would hit the walls, back to Beverly Point, and then a maximum uh, flow when there's just too much going by and, and it doesn't work on the other end. So there is a range for any given engine. There's also the possibility that we might be able to inject some other elements kind of in that nozzle region. Um, and maybe trade off some specific impulse for thrust. For example, if you're only going to Mars, you don't actually even want 10,000 seconds. You want maybe even 8,000 seconds, 7,000 seconds. You want a lower specific impulse and a higher thrust because we really want to get there faster. But possibly you might inject some other, some other propellant. That's one possibility to jack that up. Tim? Right. 
Yeah, okay. Uh, but what's the specific power of your system, uh, theoretically, of course? Yeah, so we're looking at about a kilowatt per kilogram, one. Where right now, um, solar power systems, fission systems are down around, you know, 0.05, 0.1. So we're looking to, you know, an order of magnitude improvement. All right, my last question is, there is one system that does produce net energy from fusion, and that's your, base, that's your basic hydrogen bomb. But what they, the fuel they use is lithium deuterized. Uh, I was wondering why is that not being used more often or considered as a, as a fuel? Hmm. I'm guessing there's no way to create, you know, a sustained reaction from that. Um, you know, the old, old, I believe it was called Orion propulsion system, was basically shooting a bunch of hydrogen bombs out the back of the spacecraft and having a big plate. And they react against the spacecraft and push it in the other direction. But those kind of destructive systems um, are hard to build a reactor around, you know, that you can turn on, keep on, and use for, you know. And the example of these sort of high-specific impulse lower thrust systems you turn it on, it needs to stay on the entire time, right? It's not like a chemical rocket where you burn it and then you coast. Right? You're firing the whole time, and that's how you really shorten the transit times to your different destinations. Um, so, yeah, I, don't, I guess I don't personally know that much about hydrogen bombs. I've never, <laughs> never read about them, but that's my guess. Um, that it's well, not. I, I believe the hydrogen bomb was uh, the Project Orion. That was high for us. That's I wouldn't be surprised if it was a thrust-to-weight ratio greater than one with, with uh, Ryan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but you're so no, losing half your energy because only half of it's going to bounce against your shield. Um, yeah, people aren't really looking at that anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, I do know there was one project that was looking at uh, using, like, small pellets of lithium deuteride and a Z-pinch to uh, actually make that work. But that's the only person I know that does that. And then there's this target fusion where, you know, you have a lithium liner and then you zap that. Um, so you have some deuterium tritium inside. The lithium liner comes around it. You know, the fusion happens. The energy goes into the lithium, and then it all shoots out the back and hopefully, you know, gives you thrust. Um, those are some concepts. Now, what your problem is with that kind of concept, so again, similar to sort of you're shooting something in a pulse spanner out the back of the engine, you know, lithium is involved. Um, you do have to have this mechanism for creating these liners and shooting them in, but you, you might need another power source, right? So what if you need a fission reactor just to power your fusion propulsion? But, hey, you know, someday if we're sending manned missions to Jupiter, if we're thinking big, you might have that kind of system. So the University of Alabama specifically, they have some money from NASA um, to look at fusion where they're looking at one of these kind of pulse nozzle systems and trying to figure out if they can make some power out of it and actually kind of close the loop. So you wouldn't need that fission reactor, but you would have something similar to kind of what you're saying, um, like that liner concept. And it would produce propulsion for the spacecraft and, and also enough power to kind of run itself. Um, so you, there's concepts like that, too, that are still pulse that, you know, you're um, – but that's not like a reactor for the ground. That's kind of just a propulsion application. And so there are those kind of configurations also, right, where there's tension bolts. So many, so many concepts. <laughs> you know, if there's so many ways to make magnetic and electric fields, um, even in traditional electric propulsion, right? There's ionized fluids and, you know, gridded engines and hull thrusters and just all kinds of 
Magnetic reconnection thruster is another new idea. Um, so many so many ways to make magnetic and electric fields. Tim, anything else? No, that's it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, listeners, um, we told Stephanie an hour, and we're past that, but if you uh, want to give us a call, you, you need to hurry, 866-667-7223. Uh, so another question is Larry in Tucson, and Larry says, well, let's take the phone call. I'll give them priority. Uh, where the hell do I put um, Welcome to the show, Carl. Welcome to the space show. Thank you for calling. Who are you? Where are you, please? Hi, David. This is John in Fremont, California. Hi, John. Hi, uh, Stephanie. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. I'm uh, calling about your, your paper the, that you co-authored that came out last May on um, a fusion-powered uh, Titan aircraft. Yeah. Uh, can you uh, describe that a little bit more for the audience? Yeah, so that's a fun mission. So there's two different fusion systems in that mission concept. And so one is the fusion rocket that gets you to Titan. So it brings the whole system to Titan. And our fusion rocket means we could probably do that in about two years. And then the second is a closed-loop power reactor on the aircraft, so basically creating an electric aircraft to fly around in the atmosphere and do all the science. So two different kinds of fusion systems, one of the rocket configuration, one of the closed configuration. So we have a bigger rocket, uh, I'm trying to think, uh, two-megawatt electric rocket for the propulsion system because your aircraft is fairly sizable, and then maybe a half-megawatt closed reactor for the aircraft. And we had a, a summer intern worked on that project, and she designed the whole aircraft and did some um, trajectory optimization studies of kind of going into the atmosphere and, and flying around. And I, I think it has six, like, electric propeller engines on it. So it's kind of the idea of, you know, if we could have this, this fusion reactor and it could be nice and small, you know, really expanding the number of things we could do with it. So, you know, the Dragonfly spacecraft has, you know, a little radioisotope battery, so the whole thing has uh, the numbers in the paper, maybe, I want to say 80 watts, um, as opposed to, you know, a half a megawatt, you know, electric aircraft that can fly around and just gather more data and send more of that data back. So I, I heard you say that your, your timeline is um, about 10 years away from um, commercial applications. Is, is that correct? Yeah, that's kind of our development plan is that we would have one system. Our next system would be a do superconducting magnets and achieve um, ten times stronger field than we have now and produce that sort of 100 million fusion temperature. And then a, a further machine, what we call the fourth generation, the PFRC4, would then hopefully be hot enough to produce the deuterium-helium-3 fusion. So two, two key steps, so approximately three to five years each would put us at 10 years, hopefully having demonstrated uh, deuterium-helium-3 fusion. And then would, would that Titan mission be possible at that time, or is that further out? Well, we would need to build an actual rocket prototype, right? So there are some differences, like in terms of the shielding materials that you would use on a space system, you know, everything having to be lighter for space that, you you know, we wouldn't spend the money doing that on a terrestrial system. So some of the materials would be different. 
Um, so we would need to build an actual space prototype and test it on a space mission. Um, you know, maybe maybe to Mars, you know, maybe just going around back and forth between the lunar gateway and here, you know, kind of in Earth orbit. So you would need to test that space system. So maybe, you know, another five years to do that. And then at that point, if we're able to demonstrate one in space, then we could start base. And we're at TRL-9, right, to use our NASA seat. And then they could start, you know, really baselining missions with it. Um, the cool thing, though, about using the fusion rocket to get there is you don't have to wait for the right alignment, right? Every planet, every year, as soon as Earth is pointing in the direction of that planet, you leave. <laughs> so it would wow. make it, you know, there'd be departure opportunities much more often, you know, for these missions. So you wouldn't be designing for these kind of rare launch opportunities. Wow. That would be one of the benefits. Okay, one more, one more question. Um, so uh, your, your PF... RC uses a a radio frequency plasma heating system. Um, I, I, when I was working in fusion back in the 80s, um, I worked for a company that made gyrotrons that um, are, are are used to heat plasmas for uh, tokamaks. Um, what is your system for heating the plasma? Oh yeah, the radio frequency. So we have a particular configuration of these antennas. So we call them figure eight antenna or like a double picture frame antenna. Um, there are photos on the website. So you have um, sort of two rectangles next to each other on all four sides of the machine. And they um, produce their rotating field um, at, you know, 90 degrees offset in phase. So they're creating a rotating electric field which drives the current. So the idea is with these antennas, and, and the odd parity refers to on one side of the picture frame, the field is pointing up, on the other side is pointing down. So we have two different directions, and then the whole thing rotates. And there are some fun movies about what the field looks like. But that creates closed field line regions, a closed field FRC. Theoretically, you can show that with the equations, that, that um, configuration of the antenna. So ideally, this single RF heating system would both create the FRC, so confine it, and heat the plasma. And that's that rotating electric field creating this push-pull um, at the frequency that it's going, push-pulling the ions, and they're at some uh, fraction of the ion cyclotron um, heating. And then you sort of get this, uh, our simulations predict you get this chaotic heating of the, of the individual particles. So this antenna system would do both, confinement and heating. And we have several patents on that specifically. So we call it, yeah, RMF not for odd parity or odd parity rotating magnetic field. And so the antenna, it's non-moving parts, so the antennas just sit there, but you're driving them with these um, oscillating currents. <clears throat> and they produce a rotating field. So that is the concept. So, um, and that's, it, yeah. It's electrical current um, that are generating the RF frequencies. Yeah, so the current system right now, we're at 1.8 megahertz, and we could probably be at, I think it's a higher frequency once we go up in magnetic field. So, yeah, it's tied to the magnetic field that you give an experiment or reactors at. So whether you're at 0.1 Tesla, 1 Tesla, or 5 Tesla, um, you would operate at a at a different RF frequency. But it's sort of in the, in the megahertz range. Okay. Well, thank you very much for um, this uh, exciting show. It's very interesting. Thank you. Very, thank you. And thanks for calling. Um, Stephanie, where is your lab located? Where do you do all of this research? 
So the PFRC2 experiment is here in Plainsboro, New Jersey, at the uh, Princeton Plasma Physics Laboratory, uh, which is the Department of Energy's really fusion lab, although, you know, NIS was that, that other lab. So, and we have our office, uh, we have our little office just a few miles from uh, PPTL. So that's where the experiment is located. Can people tour these facilities or are they off limits? It's not open to the public. Now, they used to have an amazing open house every couple of years, and since COVID, they haven't had one, but they would occasionally have these open houses where members can come, and they have a tokamak on-site, NSTX, and you could go in and you can, you know, see the tokamak and kind of walk through the tunnel <laughs> because <laughs> it's in the tokamak, it has to be like, you know, like a quarter mile away from the control room um, because it doesn't produce radiation. So um, they do occasionally have those tours, you know, and... For a long time, you know, with COVID, we couldn't bring any visitors at all, but they are now allowing us to bring visitors back in so we can arrange to have people come and give them tours, like of our lab, and, and hopefully they'll have those open houses again. They also have um, a lecture series in the summer on Saturdays, or it's in the winter, sorry, science on Saturdays, and they give lectures, and, and people can come in to the facility and come into the, the lecture hall and have donuts and um, and see lectures on all different topics, not just fusion. It's a chance for people to kind of feel connected to the lab. It used to be classified back in the day. It's kind of buried back in the woods <laughs> off the highway. You wouldn't know it was there. Um, you have a caller on hold, but the question I was going to ask before that last phone call was from Larry in Tucson, Arizona, and he said there's a lot of talk uh, about finally getting to the point where we're going to have nuclear propulsion I understand that this is fission-oriented. Is nuclear propulsion with fission, uh, is it a natural evolution next to go to fusion, or are they, in a way, not even related? I would say it's more that they're not related, um, right, because with fission, you know, you've got your big heavy uranium and a lot of radiation. You have big shields. And there's nuclear thermal propulsion, where we're just using the heat from that. And then there's nuclear electric, where you have a reactor, so you're creating electricity and then driving an electric propulsion system. There are some commonalities in terms of overall the shielding materials. Research has commonalities. You know, we do fusion systems need some shielding. Um, if you have a heat engine that's taking the heat and producing electricity, there's some commonalities. Um, but the, the reactor itself is really very different. You know, you're dealing with sort of, you know, uranium, and mostly that's like a solid, you know, rock, basically, <laughs> um, a rod, as opposed to plasmas, right? The fusion is all about confining plasmas or, or possibly imploding some liners or some little pellets. So uh, they're quite different physically. As I said, there's some overlap in the subsystem. The one thing that we both need, this is interesting, is cryogenic storage of the fuel. Um, previous caller mentioned, you know, he remembered that we used hydrogen for fuel. Where we got these big tanks of hydrogen, we have to keep it cold, um, cryogenically stored, and that's something that hasn't been done in space yet. NASA's fortunately doing a lot of research on that because they need that for their whether it's a nuclear um, fission electric system or a fusion electric system. That that fuel and that fuel storage system would also be the same. So fortunately, we can benefit from that research. But that's another um, unique tanks with, like, real thick shielding, and then it does take electricity to maintain that and control the boil off of the cryogenic fuel. That's another challenge of these, these types of propulsion systems. Um, you have another caller waiting to talk to you. Hi, caller. Welcome to our program today. Who are you? Where are you, please? Yeah, hi. Uh, this is AJ from Washington, D.C. 
Hi, how are you, David? I'm doing fine. How are you? That's me. Good. Hi, great. Um, hi. Hi. Uh, my question was, uh, there is, you know, in the 60s, I mean, the 50s and 60s, there were a, a fair number of uh, aircraft propulsion experiments that were done uh, called NEPA, NEPA, and ARE, etc. And also they did uh, actually, uh, um, that, uh, that, you know, nuclear propulsion with fission for uh, um, ramjets also at that time, you know, Kortori and all that. So I was just wondering if, would it be possible to, uh, you know, use uh, what whatever you have, uh, what your your concept, I mean, you said that just, you know, small size, and also to fit into an aircraft and fly the aircraft, whether you heat the turbines, uh, the, the, the air that is ingested in turbines with that, or fly it at uh, higher you know, a velocity like a ramjet velocity or maybe even a scramjet velocity, you know. So would it be possible to do that? In other words, heat the air enough. I mean, I would, uh, you know, you, you create a fair amount of heat. There's no need to convert that into electricity in this case. It's directly heating the ingested air. Would it not be possible to do that? And that would make, uh, you know, air transportation cheap as hell, you know. We have actually looked at that. We have looked at, you're right, there are possibilities for a fusion-powered ramjet, and the Titan aircraft paper yeah. actually talks about that some. And here on Earth, we've looked at sort of um, that mid-altitude, you know, like lower than a satellite where the drag is really high, and yeah. using the fusion system. So there are some interesting possibilities for putting vehicles <laughs> in uh, spaces where we yeah. haven't before. And yet it could be small enough to fit on an aircraft. That is exactly the range we're looking at, sort of that 1 to 10 megawatt kind of the reactor being about the size of a minivan. So on a large enough aircraft, um, that is definitely a possibility and, and something that we have looked at and potentially exciting applications. You're right. Yeah, actually, I'm sort of designing something based on fusion, uh, but, uh, you know, something based on fusion would probably be even more interesting because fusion obviously has uh, some other problems, you know, what happens if, if it crashes, etc. Um, and, you know, one can, with, uh, you know, with some other new ideas, one can think of an exhaust which is not for fusion. One can think of an exhaust which is not radioactive. When it can possibly be done, but for fusion, it's even more simple. So by definition, almost uh, that way. So that was kind of the thing. The other question I have is that uh, the this uh, NIF, um, the facility, National Ignition Facility, that uh, it, that did the uh, experiment. Uh, obviously, you know, started, I remember, started in the 90s or 80s as uh, a Shiva laser and then became a Shiva Nova laser, etc., to create equal amount of pressure from all sides over, over the, the pellet. Now, in that case, it seems to me like it wasn't a, really a chain reaction at all. It was just simply a fusion uh, that took place, to, you know, one can say... Um, uh, obviously, you know, greater energy than what was in, what was uh, given to it through lasers, but not greater than the all energy. But that, but besides that, 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 you know, disregarding that, 
It really was not a chain reaction. Is that correct? I believe you are correct, right. You know, you have the one little pellet, you zap it, it makes yeah. fusion, but it's not a chain reaction. <laughs> right? You have to put in a new yeah, pellet, so this, zap it. It really is not controlled fusion per se, right? No. Yeah, no, once you zap it, there's no control at all. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, controlled fusion is what we are looking for to be able to do all these other things that, uh, you know, we need to do. So in this case, if it was not controlled fusion, that's going to, you know, in other words, the pellet that uh, that actually explodes or implodes has to provide the energy for the next pellet to implode, etc. those kinds of things instead of, you know, the laser energy. That did not happen there. And so no. uh, that's going to take a long, long time for that to actually happen. Yeah, no, you're right. So I'll mention Helion again. They have their concept is yeah. pulse, and the design of their magnet. They they are thinking that they can extract the energy out of it from each pulse. You know, it will, um, uh-huh. you know, they'll suck the energy out of it and have that energy. Both they'll have net energy. They'll be able to have energy for the next pulse, and then you know, net energy to the grid. Okay. So they have a concept for extracting the energy out from their magnet, but they have magnets to do that. So you know, the laser system. And, you know, doesn't have that. And then they need a blanket because they're DC. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, where's the tritium okay. coming from, right? You need the tritium to make the pellets. Uh, there's a lot of complications. Yeah, right. Yeah, love. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Uh, just enjoyed the uh, Thank you. Today. So, thank you. Thanks. Stephanie, you, so, you know so much about all the other companies. So are all of you in friendly competition and if I talk to someone about Helion are they as well versed as what their competition is doing or are you the exception I would imagine people are keeping up on the competition and you know again well right there's there's some shared technology shared research for example one of the RPE programs was to build diagnostics with the idea that they would visit different systems right that the government would be providing this service that could be used by multiple companies in a collaborative manner rather than everybody having to spend all the money for their own instruments. Um, and we're all members of this fusion industry association where we're looking to work together, for example, you know, the regulatory environment and, you know, lobbying where necessary to make sure that, you know, we're not being held back in five years from, you know, regulations that haven't caught up with the reality of how a fusion reactor would work. Um, so I, I don't think I'm unique. I'm sure that the business development folks at each of these companies are, are keeping abreast of how we're all doing and, um, you know, we follow each other on LinkedIn and follow our press releases, and I'd say it's still quite collaborative um, because there's a lot we can learn from each other still at this stage. Um, George is in Portland, and I, I have a call waiting for you, and then I, I guess I'm going to have to say no more because I know you, you have other plans to get to. Uh, George, <laughs> George in Portland says, please tell me how middle school and high school kids win science fairs with working tabletop fusion reactors. Oh, my boss loves these. He's talking about a fusor. Um, yes. Uh, yeah, I'm just ready. Win science fairs with fusors. What, so what are they? <laughs> that's an electrostatic confinement system. And, yeah, my boss likes to say all the time, Mike Polushek, right, the founder of, of my uh-huh. company, that, you know, high school students can make fusors in their garage and it produces neutrons, right? It makes fusion. 
The problem is it does not scale to a reactor. There is no way to make it scale for various reasons of, like, the losses. The losses just end up too high. So while you can make some fusion out of it, there's no way to get net power out of it because of the losses and the confinement issues with this electrostatic type of confinement. Um, now, you mentioned all the other companies. So Avalanche Energy, they have what they believe is a variation of an electrostatic system. So it's not the same as the fusor that the students are building. They, they have some, some components and some, some ways they think of providing the confinement to keep, you know, the energy from escaping, keep those losses down, and actually make a reactor out of it, a very small reactor. But he is correct. It's called a fusor. Um, students can build it. It does produce neutrons, but for, there are a variety of scientific reasons why we can't make that particular configuration into a commercial reactor. Does it work with high temperatures? I mean, there is enough, you know, there is enough plasma getting hot to make some amount of fusion, but, you know, the question is what percentage of the plasma, right, is fusing or what percentage of it is at that temperature um, and enough to produce fusion, and it's just not enough. You can't make it be enough. So I think it's pretty safe. I, I hope they're not irradiating, them, irradiating themselves in their, in their garages when they build these, but I think, you know, the production of neutrons is measurable on a detector, but, you know, very, very low. Um, you have a call, and uh, listeners, this will be uh, most likely the, the last call for today. A caller, who are you? Where are you? Thank you for your call. Uh, this is Marshall, the software engineer geek, and uh, I have always lived by Moore's Law, which kept talking about uh, computers doubling in capacity every uh, 18 months, two years, and so on. Is there a similar rule uh, about uh, uh, cryogenic uh, magnetic equipment that... Uh, you keep upping the number of Tesla that uh, the magnets can produce. Therefore, you know, sometime in the future you're going to be able to get really good uh, tokamaks and mirror machines, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know. I would say these, these Webco type of wires that were discovered already quite a few years ago now, nothing, nothing has really surpassed them. All they're really working to do it is make the wire thinner and lighter so that, you know, the amount of current per cross-section goes up, right, so the magnets can become smaller because they're actually quite hefty. Um, it was a, a, quite a thick tape for the amount of it. It's a little tiny layer of crystalline superconductor down through the middle of it. So while, you know, the tape as an engineering material is, is getting better and being able to manage, it's very, like, it's a very complex and all these different layers. Um, so they need to make it cost-effective in very long length. Um, and so we're looking at, you know, a 10 Tesla tokamak, maybe a 12 Tesla tokamak. But if you want to say, well, can we build a 30 Tesla tokamak? Um, I don't see... I don't think they really are discovering, you know, all these new superconducting materials that would be nice. Where we are seeing the benefits are in the computation, so Moore's Law has benefited us. And David asked a while ago about sort of, you know, why now? Why are we having this commercial explosion and, you know, coming back to some of these older concepts and it's computational power? Well, we can run simulations now of not just a single particle. In the 50s and 60s, you know, they'd do some math of a single particle, and they'd say, oh, look, we heated it, you know, or look, we confined it. And then they put all the particles in that didn't work anymore. Well, now with computers and these PIC codes and these hybrid codes, and we can run them on supercomputing clusters, we can learn so much about how a configuration might work, you know, how the disruptions might work, you know, how we can control it. And that's one of the things that's kind of... Um, 
helping all these different systems. So Moore's Law is benefiting us in terms of how cleverly we can define, design that system. You know how they can make these accelerators, which have the twisty field. It's like a tokamak with a twisty field. It'll produce a higher beta, um, you know, higher plasma pressure for the same magnetic field. You know, I, I wish. So I don't see superconductors necessarily following an additional law. Hopefully we will come up with superconductors that have similar properties at a higher temperature. Like right, in the high temperature sure. superconductors, you, you hear people say that, like, oh, liquid nitrogen temperatures, you know, it only needs, you know, 70 Kelvin. But you can't get the high fields at the 70 Kelvin. You still have to cool it down to 10 Kelvin or even less to get those high fields. Mm-hmm. So you can get there, but you still have a whole lot of cryocoolers that you need. <laughs> so what we really need is those superconducting materials that, that can produce those higher fields at even higher temperatures. Um, mm-hmm. And people are working on it, but there haven't been there haven't been any more breakthroughs in the last ten years that I know of. So it, it's rather serendipitous. Every once in a while, some something happens, and there's a big acceleration in capacity, and then it may flatline for ten, fifteen years, and then there's the next discovery, which really isn't a, a, a regular line. So. Yeah, if you see follow triple products, there's sort of a Moore's Law of triple products, right, where now we're seeing, you know, faster, more and more jumps. Um, and that was sort of where, you know, the laser system, the NIF system, you know, had their net and their single, <laughs> their single net energy pulse. Um, and all these different configurations are kind of pushing up the triple product ladder. Um, so that's hopefully where we're going to see those this order of magnitude gains similar to Moore's Law that let us cross the threshold and do an actual commercial reactor design. Or a rocket. So, so rockets yeah. do not need the same gain, but, you know, we still need to cross that line and, and have enough energy going out the back to make it worthwhile. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much. Um, Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Marshall. Um, Tim, who called a little while ago, sent in a note and wants to know if there is a place on your website or someplace where the papers that you referenced are there and, and they can access them or find them or have the URLs. Is there a listing of the of papers that you accessed or others that might be of interest to listeners? Yeah. No, we have an R&D tab on our psatellite.com website. And on the R&D tab, there is a fusion propulsion page or menu item, and that does have a list of all of our publications right there. We link. Um, so not how- all of them are freebies, as in, you know, some of them are, you know, um, there might be a fee, but there is a list of all of them. And um, So what is, some- do you know the URL for that by, the ch- by chance? Well, so our website is psatellite.com, uh-huh. and then it's slash technology slash fusion is our fusion page. And we have an R&D little tab on the menu there, which goes to that page. And then on our blog menu tab, we have a tag where all the DFD posts are, have a page, basically. So you can go blog. Oh, yeah. So psatellite.com slash tag slash DFD has all the posts that are tagged specifically for the fusion engine in one giant list. Okay. So those two resources list a lot of the okay. things that I've mentioned today. Uh, so, Tim and, and others, if you're interested, uh, you can find what you're looking for on those uh, pages and on their on their website. Um, have we missed anything that we should have talked to you about for updates or anything 
that's news that uh, wasn't around a couple of years ago? Well, I guess the biggest news that I alluded to, well, is that NASA is actually finally, <laughs> after all these years, they are funding two fusion projects at universities. And they have a program that they call Early Stage Innovation, and they have grants going on at the University of Maryland and at the University of Alabama Huntsville, where they have, you know, young people, so, you know, Ph.D. students, postdocs, and young faculty working on some of these systems. So Maryland is working on similar in configuration to ours, but bigger, direct fusion drive with a centrifugal mirror confinement. And... Um, Alabama Huntsville is looking more at these pulsed uh, fission fusion systems and extracting energy from the magnetic nozzle. So NASA has those two research programs. Those are each three-year programs that are in their first year. Um, so that was a big deal that they actually had a fusion propulsion topic on a NASA solicitation. And so that's kind of in the, in the land of academia where we want to train um, scientists, you know, to work in fusion propulsion. Um, so that's exciting little tidbit. And then, you know, the Department of Energy is, as I said, you know, actually funding commercial fusion now on the auspices of their milestone program. They have their infuse grants where they're supporting the commercial fusion companies by having the labs do work, um, sort of that the companies need using their modeling skills, using their experimental skills, um, facilities and their um, diagnostics to help out the commercial fusion companies. So it's become very collaborative. Um, and we've benefited from that. So we have three infuses from last year. So that's the Department of Energy uh, Science. And we're working on um, modeling different antenna configurations for our concepts to see, you know, how much more efficient we can, we can make it, theoretically. Um, and finding antenna configurations that we'll then be able to test on our actual experiments. Um, so that's exciting. So we're all benefiting from those programs. So your tax dollars at work. Terrific. Well, uh, I really appreciate your returning to the show. Listeners, Fremont John posted on the blog the, the links that Stephanie just gave us so you can find uh, those papers very easily. And uh, thank you very much, John, for doing that. Um, I look forward to uh, seeing you at uh, AIAA Ascend in Las Vegas. You're not by any chance working out a special algorithm for slot machines, are you? <laughs> no, but, nor do I count cards. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just thinking you had higher math skills, so maybe, uh, you know, or, or some magnetic way to influence a slot machine where you wouldn't get caught. I'm pretty sure I'd get kicked out. I, have, I had a friend who was very good at that, and he got kicked out of plenty of casinos. Yeah, they, they, they spot you from a, a million miles away, and they escort if you, you out. you make too much money, it's very obvious. <laughs> but unlike in the olden days, they don't go out into the desert and dig a hole and leave you there. So you'll be treated with respect as you are escorted from the pre- pre- premises. Oh. Um, but it's been great talking to you again and look forward to another show and as I said look forward to uh, meeting you in person in Las Vegas and listeners real quick our sponsors are Northrop Grumman, AIAA Helix in Luxembourg uh, National Space Society Celestis, Astrox Dr. Benaroya and the Space Foundation and if you want more on being a sponsor and banner ads and PR messages please email me at drspace at the space show Dot com. Uh, there's still time for you to enjoy the weekend, and please do so. Remember uh, our upcoming show schedule, which is all on our newsletter and accessible at this time.
time. And again, thanks to Stephanie. And uh, Stephanie and I say goodbye from the space show. Everybody keep looking up. Back again on Tuesday.